Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already. For he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, we need to make sure that we are right with the Lord. Scripture teaches that once we're saved, we are secure in that salvation for our entire existence. We cannot lose it because of sin, because Christ has already paid for those sins and our salvation is secure. But when we sin, it breaks fellowship with God. The rapport with God is hindered. Our spiritual growth is stopped for the time being, and we need to recover the filling of the Holy Spirit. So we are to confess our sins, as Scripture says, which means to admit or acknowledge them to God, and he will forgive us of those sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we begin with a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship with the Lord. Then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, our salvation is totally dependent upon you. You designed a plan for eternity past that was sufficient, that would take care of the problem of man by the fact that you sent your Son, the eternal second person of the Trinity, who would become flesh and live among us, go to the cross, and there on the cross, he who knew no sin would be made sin for us. Our sins would be imputed to him. He would bear our penalty so that all that would be necessary for us to do is simply to trust, rely upon him and him alone for our salvation. And Father, as we believe in Christ, we're regenerate. The scripture says we have new life, and that new life needs to be nourished, it needs to be fed, it needs to uh, grow and mature, and we do that through your word. For we are to grow, the scripture says, by the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. So now as we study your word this morning, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would use this in our lives to further our spiritual growth, our understanding of you and the reality of the creation that you have created. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We've been in a study related to the angelic conflict, that is the war that broke out in eternity past between Satan, who was the chief of all the angels, the foremost of all the angels, and his desire to be like God. And he, in turn, he led approximately a third of the angels in revolt against God. We have recognized that human history plays a vital part, is part of that cosmic conflict that takes place. And Satan is attempting today to blind the minds of the lost to the truth of the gospel. He does this through various means. He does it through various philosophies. He does it through various religious systems to blind men to either the existence of God, and that produces things such as atheism, or false substitutes of gods through uh, polytheism, through pantheism, through various other religions that promote different concepts of God. Just because somebody talks about God does not mean that they're talking about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is the God of Abraham, Isaac, 
and Jacob, the God of the Bible, is a Trinitarian God. The God of the Bible is a God who is defined by two key terms in the Scriptures. One is his holiness, which has to do with his righteousness and his justice, and the other term is his love. And these are integral to understanding who the God of the Bible is. The God of the Bible has created us, created us in such a way that we are designed to understand who he is and to understand his revelation to us. And as the creator, he is the one who has designed everything and created everything, and he is the one who defines everything within his creation. And so when we align our thinking with his thinking, then we understand reality as it is. When we go to some other source for truth and we think that we find it in some religious system or we find it in some philosophical system or we find it elsewhere other than the Bible, then we are operating on a system that is basically a fantasy. It is not grounded in truth and therefore there will always be uh, problems, there will be inconsistencies and Uh, Our life will never be what God intended it to be because we're not living on the basis of his creation as he created it. As we pointed out in the last couple of weeks, Christianity is inherently related to thinking. It's related to thinking. Belief in Christ has to do with thought. That's what belief is. Belief is not an emotion, although uh, one of the ways Satan seeks to uh, distract us from truth is to uh, muddy up the waters of vocabulary. And we live in a world today when people often say that they uh, they want to express what they believe by saying what they feel. Like, well, I just feel this way about that. And, and instead of, I think this way. Well, what do you feel about this? What do you uh, feel about that? Instead of what do you believe or what do you what do you think? And last week I pointed out that in an interview of Fox News a little over a week ago now, there was this uh, uh, interview with uh, Lynn Cheney, the wife of the current vice president, where the interviewer asked her this question about, uh, in relation to uh, presidential candidate Mitt Romney, who was, a, uh, who was a Mormon, said, well, you know, you have members of your family who are Mormons. Uh, what do you think about that being an issue in the presidential election? And her response, and I don't know whether she's a Christian or not, whether she's a believer or not, but her response is typical of worldly thinking. For she said that, well, we aren't supposed to think about what we, be- what we believe in terms of religion. It's a matter of the heart. It's just something, she said, that uh, we don't take out our right brain and examine these things. We just, we just believe them. It's just how we feel about things. And so she revealed in her answer that which is uh, pretty common today in American culture is a rejection of thought and an acceptance of something that is totally irrational. And yet God, if we're going to believe something that's irrational, that says something about God and ultimate reality, doesn't it? That you think that God must also be uh, a God who is irrational. You see, what people believe ultimately goes back to what they believe about uh, ultimate reality and about God himself. And uh, uh, one of the things that I'm emphasizing as part of our series is that we have to think about things that we believe and see what they reveal about ultimate questions, uh, questions in life. And that the Bible teaches that there is this contrast between the thinking of the world and the thinking that is expressed in the Word of God, which we sometimes call divine viewpoint, because the Bible in its entirety and all 66 books of the Bible reflects a consistent, integrated whole. There's no contrast, there's no conflict, there's no uh, discord between the 40-plus writers of Scripture. They agree and complement each other uh, throughout the scripture, so that it, the Bible in its entirety presents the unified thought of God about everything within his creation. And not, not everything in the sense that it gives us a comprehensive or exhaustive historical uh, analysis or biological analysis or scientific analysis or something like that, but it gives us a framework for understanding everything within his creation. So, 
throughout the Bible, we see this contrast between the thinking of the world and the thinking, uh, thinking of God. And one passage where we see this very clearly is in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. There we read, the apostle says, yet we, that is the apostles, the message that has been given to the apostles, the 11 apostles, uh, through Jesus Christ, it would be 12 apostles when you include the apostle Paul, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age. And he uses the word there, ion, uh, rather than the word cosmos, which indicates the uh, the thinking of that, the dominant thinking of that age. He says it's not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. His focus there is that the wisdom of the world is based on a finite, temporary foundation, whereas the wisdom of God comes from the thinking of God. God is eternal. God is infinite, God is omniscient, and therefore the thoughts that are based upon his revelation are thoughts that are based on absolute truth that never changes. We see this contrast, or, or, or this, this whole thinking of the world played out uh, in terms of two different words that are used in the Greek. The first is the word cosmos, which is why I refer to cosmic thinking and spell that with a K. Uh, cosmos describes the arrangement and system of thinking that is arrayed uh, against God, that there is a system of thought, or mi- actually many systems of thought, that are arrayed against God, but they all participate in the basic foundation of two things. One is uh, antagonism to God, and the other is uh, a, a autonomy, that is, an antagonism to God's authority, uh, emphasis on man's independence. So cosmic thinking focuses on man's autonomy and his antagonism to God. And this comes from the example of Satan in the fall who expressed his desire to be independent of God. He wanted to be God, and as a result of that, he became antagonistic to God. So those are the core elements. So whether... Whatever you're looking at in terms of uh, philosophical systems or religious systems, if they are exerting the independence of man and his hostility to the truth of God's revelation, as it is in the 66 books of the Bible, then they are participating in worldliness. Now, for the believer, we have the admonition in Romans 12.2, that we're not to be conformed to the, this world. And that, again, is that same word, ion, has to do with the spirit of the age, the zeitgeist of the age, of the culture. And this is going to differ if you're in uh, an Asian culture. It's different from if you're in an Islamic culture, and it's different if you're in a Western European culture. But each culture has different uh, dominant thought trends. And these all reflect that that worldliness of that particular age, that particular uh, culture. The same thing is true in a, in a secular humanistic American culture. It is set against what the Bible teaches. So the more you wish to live biblically and to think biblically, the more you're going to come into conflict with the culture uh, around you wherever you are because the culture around you Uh, whether you're in the United States, Western Europe, Asia, Africa, wherever you are, that culture around you is going to express its uh, autonomy and antagonism to God in different ways. So in the last few weeks, we've gone through uh, these subjects, uh, talking about the the different terms, cosmos and ion. Last time, talked about the fact that it's important to understand these different uh, aspects of our culture because, number one, we are to give an answer for the hope that is within us, the Scripture says, according to 1 Peter 3.15, and that plays a role in evangelism. But it also plays a role in understanding what's happened in our own soul because each of us are raised in homes where we're taught certain things by our parents. We pick up certain things from our peers. We are influenced to some degree by professors at university, teachers in school. And as we pick up these various ideas, 
before we are we really understand what the scripture says we pick up a lot of false ideas we pick up the thinking of the world around us and part of the process of sanctification which is what the the term the bible uses to talk about our spiritual growth as we become experientially set apart unto god is learning not to have our thinking aligned with the world, but to have our thinking aligned with the Scripture. We're not to be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of our mind. Notice it doesn't say by the renewing of our of our emotions. So that we've gone through this process emphasizing uh, what the Bible teaches here and this contrast that we need to learn this. It's in much the same way as a... Uh, uh, a missionary, if you were to, to decide that you wanted to be a missionary to, uh, a, to South America, or if you wanted to be a missionary to Africa, or you were going to be a missionary to some Asian country, you would, to a certain degree, have to understand the culture, the people, the belief system of the folks that you're communicating the gospel to. Because if you don't understand th- what they think, and how they think, and their value systems, and everything there, then then you can easily communicate something you don't intend to communicate. Don Richardson, in his book uh, *The Peace Child*, recalls his early years when he was he and his wife were missionaries to Stone Age tribes in uh, Papua New Guinea, and they went in and they uh, basically camped out and then built themselves a home and began to make contacts with the. Uh, uh, Indians that were there, uh, the natives that were there, the Aborigines, and as they made contact, they began to uh, learn the language, to write it down, and over the uh, course of time, they finally got to a point where they could tell uh, tell the story about Jesus. And so they got they 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 got to a point where they could tell about Jesus coming, and they were telling about the night before Jesus went to the cross and how. Uh, Jesus was betrayed by uh, Judas Iscariot, and that as a result of Judas's deception and betrayal, that Jesus uh, was uh, arrested and was crucified on the cross. And to their horror, they realized that there was something terribly wrong because the uh, those to whom they were communicating the gospel thought that Judas was the hero of the story. And that was because in that particular culture, the highest value was that of deception. And the, the, the person who could befriend somebody and deceive them and to trick them to the point that it would cost them their life was um, a very valuable individual. And so deception was a core value in their culture. And uh, that uh, really set them back. And they had to take some time to understand the culture even further so that they could clarify this. And they kept wondering, well, if deception and lying is the highest value in the culture, how in the world can we, can we ever make the gospel clear? And how in the world do they ever really understand each other? And how can they ever learn to trust each other? And uh, in this Stone Age tribe that fragmented into very small groups many times, the only way that they, the, 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 tri- the groups could come together and would know that there was, they, they were speaking truth was if the leader of one group would take a newborn child of his and give that as a peace offering to the other tribe. And it was on that basis of that peace child that they knew that truth was uh, uh, being communicated. And so uh, Don Richardson used that as an analogy of Christ being God's peace child to us. And so that broke that barrier. See, in Satan's systems, he creates these blocks to understanding understanding truth. Now, as we become believers, we still are infected with a certain amount of false ideas that we've picked up from the culture around us. And so as we study our culture and we study different things, it helps us to see how we, too, become infected and impacted by the relativistic values of our culture around us. James 4 says that, uh, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility to God? 
And what we have in the scripture, again, is this contrast. You either love the world or not. Uh, it's, it's not either or. You can't be partially, uh, have thinking partially, dom- uh, partially have affinity with the world and the other part with God. It's a, this complete and total contrast between biblical thinking and human thinking. So Paul goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 2, 8, that the wisdom that none of the rulers of this age, that this is a wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. So he goes on later in the chapter to say that natural man, that is the unbeliever, can't really comprehend the thinking of God, the wisdom of God. And so human wisdom, or God's divine wisdom, is not understood by human rulers. The wisdom, this is a wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, he says, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. What he is emphasizing there is that this wisdom of God is uh, incorporated into the Old Testament revelation. The Old Testament books, 39 books of the Old Testament, revealed through Moses and subsequent prophets, predicted and promised a Messiah, a Messiah who would fit and fulfill certain uh, prophecies. He would be a descendant of Abraham. He would be a descendant of Judah, the tribe of Judah. He would be a descendant of David. He would be born in Bethlehem, according to Micah uh, 5.2. He would be born of a virgin, according to Isaiah 7.14. Uh, he would be crucified on a cross, according to Psalm 22. And we could go on. There are over a hundred different prophecies in the Old Testament that make it clear that God would send a Messiah who would be his son, who would be fully God and fully man. Uh, As Ike read in Isaiah uh, chapter 9 this morning, that the emphasis there is that, that Christ would come and he would be called mighty God. It's an understanding that the Messiah would be fully God. In Micah 5, 2, the one who would be born in Bethlehem is the one who's going forth or from everlasting, that he is eternally uh, God, so that this one who was born, this Messiah the Jews were looking for, was not a human, but he would be fully God and fully man. He would be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And so if the world's leaders had understood the wisdom of Scripture, Uh, This passage says they would not have crucified him, but because they had rejected divine viewpoint, rejected the scripture, they could not identify Jesus as Messiah. If you reject the uh, Old Testament as possessing truth, absolute truth, then you will miss identifying who Jesus is. 1 Corinthians 2.9 goes on to say, but just as it is written... Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. This talks about the fact that, that <clears throat> this knowledge about God's wisdom comes only from the Scripture. It doesn't come from experience or empiricism, which is the phrase, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard. Neither does it come from just human thought or rationalism. That's the phrase, which have not entered into the heart, that is the thinking of man. All that God has prepared for those who love him. But God has revealed himself through the scriptures, and that's the remainder of the passage. And this is in contrast to what is taught, was believed by the Greeks at that particular time in the Corinthians. On the one hand, we have the picture I have up on the screen is from uh, Raphael's School of Athens, where you have Plato on the left and Aristotle on the right. Plato is pointing upwards, for he is saying that reality is above. Uh, He taught that the material world was just a shadow and that truth was ultimately discovered just through unaided human wisdom. And then on the right you have Aristotle. His hand is extended with his fingers spread out, and he's pointing to the details of, of the earth, and he put ultimate truth in, uh, ex- in experience, in creation, the material world. And through directly knowing the material world, you could come to know truth. Truth is discovered through the senses. So these are two contrasting views, and that's the, the, the kind of thinking that the Corinthians had. 
And Paul has to challenge that and say, no, you don't base your ultimate truth on either empiricism or on rationalism. It has to be based on revelation that God has spoken. And this provides true truth, ultimate truth. This is the truth by which we are able to evaluate all other truth. And as believers, there has to be this this exchange of human truth, human values with ultimate values. Now, when we look at uh, and study the whole issue of the cosmic system, we have to answer certain questions. And so I want to run through these, and you can use these in, in anything that you do. When you read literature, when you read history, when you read editorials in a newspaper, uh, when you read judicial decisions handed down by, by the court, when you hear, uh, when you hear statements made by political candidates, uh, you ought to ask these questions. Uh, what do you learn about ultimate reality from what this person says? In light of what they say, how do they view ultimate reality? Is ultimate reality impersonal or personal? Uh, if you, if, if it's impersonal, like the force that you have with you in the Star Wars movies, then you have an ultimate reality in the universe would be impersonal. So where did personality come from? Is, are we just living in a world governed by impersonal forces, in which case uh, that has tremendous implications for who man is? So we have to understand the nature of external reality itself. Is it just uh, the uh, mechanical processes of immaterial forces? Uh, what does that say about mankind? If there's no personality, then we're nothing more than a, a cosmic accident, just a, a cosmic um, a, a chance collection of atoms and protoplasm and there's no nothing immaterial. There's nothing eternal. There's nothing uh, distinct about man. He's just he's just inanimate. He's just a result of inanimate forces, and that has a lot to say about responsibility, uh, how you view volition, how you would view criminality. All of these kinds of things uh, are going to change depending on how you see ultimate ultimate reality. Uh, answer questions like what happens when a person dies? Do they just uh, go into the ground, that's it? Or is there a, another life afterward? Fifth question to ask, how, why can we know? Why do we know anything? How do we know? How do we know anything with certainty? And this gets at the whole issue of, of, of truth. How do you know? People make all kinds of claims. They claim that this book is, gives me religious truth, this book gives me truth, but you have to be able to weigh these things and evaluate them, and how do you know uh, what truth is all about? Sixth, how do you know right from wrong? This gets into values. Every system starts with values. If ultimate reality is just, uh, is just matter, then how do you ever get to right or wrong? You can't. You can't. It just, it just, it would just be personal preference. It would just be a choice made by individual cultures. And that's what it's, uh, happened in our world today with multiculturalism is it's consistent with the foundation of, um, of Darwinistic origins that if you start from, uh, just matter and everything is just the product of time plus chance and we're just an accidental blob of protoplasm sitting here, then right and wrong are simply terms we use to express personal preferences or cultural preferences. But if ultimate reality is God, and God is holy and righteous in his very nature, then what he expresses is absolute truth, and it can't be changed. And it is going to be uh, expressed consistently throughout his creation. Seventh question has to do with what is the meaning of history? Is history just the accidental uh, events of human uh, decisions, or is it actually going somewhere? Is there some ultimate resolution, uh, which is what the Bible teaches, that ultimately all things will be resolved in judgment uh, by God? So we start with these, and as, as Christians, we begin with an understanding of God as a personal and infinite God. He is personal. That means he is able to have relationships with people. That means that that, that has to imply, just think about it a little bit. If God is personal, that has to imply that God is capable of social relationships. That involves 
persons. Now, as we look at the attributes of God that I have listed on the screen, that God is the sovereign creator of all things, that he is righteous, that he is just, that he is truth, that he is love, that he is eternal life, he is omniscient, he is omnipotent, he is omnipresent, and he is immutable. Now, let's think about these attributes just a minute. Righteousness means that he is the he is perfect in all that he does. He is absolute perfection. Just means the application of that perfection, those standards, uh, to his creation. He is truth. That means that there's no uh, shifting within him. He is absolute truth. What he says is true. He is the standard of all things. He is love. That means that he is uh, capable of relations with other people, and those are governed by this absolute quality of love. The Scripture says several places God is love. But he is also immutable. Look at the uh, last um, aspect there. He's immutable, and he is eternal life at the top of the right column. Let's put those two things together. He never changes. And he is eternal. That means that billions and billions and billions of years ago, God would, be, would have to be love. Before God created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, he would have to be a God of love. In eternity past, God would have to be a God capable of relationship. Now, this gets us back to the very nature of understanding God. Is, the Bible ex- describes God as a triune God, that he is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There are three distinct persons, yet one in essence. Many people think, well, that just seems like a, uh, some sort of uh, uh, paradox or contrast. And no, that's because he's the creator. When you try to understand God on the basis of your finite creaturely understanding, you may decide well, that is a, a paradox. But God is totally different. His ways are not our ways, the scripture says. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He is a uh, the creator God. Now, now think with me a little bit about the implications of this. For there are various re- religions in the, in the world that believe in a theistic God, something similar to what uh, the Bible teaches, uh, but he's not Trinitarian. Within, uh, <clears throat> within the history of Christianity, you've had different groups that have said that there's no Trinity. You had Arianism in the ancient world. You had Jehovah's Witnesses today. You have Unitarians who believe that there is just this solitary Unitarian deity. Uh, in non, uh, non-Christian non religions, Jews believe in a, today believe in a Unitarian uh, monotheism. They did not, though, in the Old Testament, and that can be demonstrated in a number of passages, and they did not at the time of Christ. But rabbinical theology had to uh, harden into this solitary monotheism in the early Middle Ages because they had uh, rejected the claims of Jesus and Christianity. So that's when uh, modern Judaism, rabbinical Judaism, became uh, solidified in a, in a monotheistic world, world view. Uh, Islam has a solitary monotheism. The problem with a solitary monotheism is that you can't have a God who is love. It's impossible. Because billions of years ago, that God would still have to be loved. He's infinitely loved. He's immutably loved. And if you have only a solitary personality uh, billions of years ago, then that solitary uh, personality would not have an object. If it, if it was love, it wouldn't have an object for its love. And therefore, it would have to create something to love. That would mean that this so-called deity would really be dependent upon the creature to be loving. And that would not make it God. So by definition, it would no longer be talking about a God because it wouldn't be self-sufficient. In Scripture, we have this eternal society of the Trinity. The Father is eternal. The Son is eternal. The Holy Spirit is eternal. So that the Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit loves the Father. There is an eternal society and eternal personality and eternal love operating within the Trinity that is not dependent on the creature at any particular time. This is why you have love ascribed to the God of the Bible hundreds of times in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, 
But if you look at the Quran, for instance, love is never ascribed as an attribute of Allah. That uh, there are attempts to do that later in other works of Islam, but it doesn't work because uh, Allah, who is a solitary God, can't be eternally loving because there's no one for him to love in eternity past. So he either isn't loving at all, or if he is, he is dependent upon creatures, which makes him uh, less than God. This works itself out in the way uh, the different uh, cultures express their understanding of authority relationships. In Christianity, based on the Bible, that's not to say that Christians haven't abused the Bible and become tyrannical, but based on the Bible, it <clears throat> rejects tyranny because authority functions within the framework of love. But in uh, Islamic culture, Islamic society, among uh, Muslims, you have, uh, in, 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 for example, in marriage, you just have a an autocratic authority line, quite different from what you have in the Bible. So our ultimate reality is based on God. We have a God who is a triune God that makes him a a loving God. And this is what is so important is to understand this attribute of love. For Scripture says that God demonstrated his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his unique Son that whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loved us in such a way that he gave his Son so that love becomes a defining attribute of Christianity. So that in John 13, 34, and 35, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you. And this defines Christianity, sets it apart from any other philosophy, any other uh, thing, because it's ultimately grounded in the revelation of God. And so we start off, as I pointed out earlier, when we think about what we believe and, and the aspects of, our, our, of the cosmic system, we start saying, what's ultimate reality? For the Christian, ultimate reality is a personal, infinite God who has, uh, is capable of relationship, capable of <clears throat> entering into relationship with his uh, creatures. He's able to communicate to his creatures, and when his creatures uh, sin and rebel against him, then in love God has solved the problem through his son. In contrast, other, all other philosophical systems, all other religions fail because they have no solution to the sin problem uh, whatsoever. That takes us to the next question is how do we know anything? You see, other systems are based on inadequate or finite starting points. This is a technical chart I have here that I developed some years ago to explain this, that we have basically four ways in which people have ever claimed to know anything in history. And uh, the first, we, we have three columns here, the system, the name of the system on the left, the starting point in the middle, and method on the right. The first system is rationalism. That's Plato or Descartes in modern philosophy. In rationalism, the starting point is on man's innate ideas. Ultimately, it's based on faith in human ability to think clearly, logically, and to arrive at ultimate truth just on the basis of his uh, own reason. And so this is an independent, that is, it's independent of Scripture. It's an independent use of logic and reason. That's what Eve did in the garden. She thought that she could use her reason independently of God's revelation to decide whether or not it was good to eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, empiricism. Uh, empiricism starts with a sense perception, external experience. It's the basic foundation of the scientific method. You can come to certain categories of truth with empiricism or rationalism, but it's not ultimate truth. It's just a faith in human ability to properly interpret the data that comes to him. But you can always discover something new and different tomorrow that changes the thousand points of data you've already discovered and so it can, it's, it's never uh, eternal. It's always uh, finite. Again, it's based on an independent use of logic and reason. 
Now, rationalism and empiricism always fall apart. Historically, they've always collapsed. In the ancient world, you went from Plato to Aristotle, and then you go to mysticism because uh, rationalism ultimately will become bankrupt, empiricism will become bankrupt, but you have to believe in meaning somewhere, so you just make this existential leap of faith into something, and that's mysticism. And so by the time of the New Testament, the mystery religions, which were very mystical, were the most popular in Greece. And this is the idea of inner private experience, intuition, uh, faith in human ability. And almost all religious philosophical systems have some category of mysticism. You have the um, Sufis in Islam, you have Pentecostals in Christianity, you have uh, various groups, uh, the New Age movement outside. You know, that's just a, another mystical system, but it is man trying to find meaning on his own. Ultimately, it's just on his own uh, intuition. And mysticism differs from rationalism and empiricism in that it's non-logical, it's non-rational, and it's non-verifiable. When man tries to do anything where he grounds his thought on these three foundations, it will always fall apart. Jesus used the analogy of a man building a house on shifting sand. When you construct your view of life based on any of these three systems, it's building it on shifting sand. The only thing that's certain is the revelation of God. God revealed himself to man through the prophets and apostles, the 66 books of the Bible, 39 Old Testament books, 27 New Testament books, and we are to think within that framework. That's why it's so important uh, to think in terms of framework. That's why... uh, uh, Charles, Charlie Clough developed the whole concept of framework is that we have to think within the, the parameters that are laid out in Scripture. When we do that, we can then go out and think about all the different issues of life, but that becomes the, the, the framework. So I've got one more chart to go through this morning. This is how any kind of cosmic system gets developed. I'm calling it the cosmic mixmaster. On the left side, everybody makes four basic assumptions in answering certain questions. The, the assumptions relate to ultimate reality. It relates to who man is, what's the human race comprised of. Are we just a cosmic accident? Are we created by God in his image? Uh, those are the two broad contrasts. We also develop certain assumptions about knowledge. How do you come to know ultimate truth, ultimate reality, and then ethics. Ethics have to do with your values, what's right, what's wrong. And so you take the, the answers to these basic areas of questions, and then they all get kind of churned around in cosmic thought. And then this, this goes into that cosmic mix master, and then it comes out the other side in terms of various philosophies and various uh, philosophical systems and religious systems. And so they'll develop ideas on origins, uh, for example, and that's why we have such a battle going on today and has been going on for over 150 years related to creation versus evolution. And this is at the very core of what some have called the culture wars. Benjamin Weicker in his book, Moral Darwinism, How We Became Hedonists, says, as a society, we are in the midst of secularization. And therefore, we are an utterly irreconcilable mix of rival views of the universe, of human nature and the human good. The culture wars are cosmological wars. That's the point, is that at the very core of these culture shifts that you see going on around you, these battles, why is it that some people go one way on some issues and other people go another way at the core has to do with their views of ultimate reality. That's why this battleground continues to go on between creation and evolution, and it will continue to go on because if you start with a impersonal universe where everything is a product of time plus chance, then you're going to end up in a world where there are no absolutes, there's no meaning, where there's no such thing as anything immaterial. People are just accidental blobs of protoplasm, and you're just trying to create out of thin air value and meaning in life when there's nothing to 
to base it on. Over against that, in complete contrast to that, it's the biblical position that God creates everything, creates man in his image, and if that's true, then uh, <clears throat> you have to face certain realities. And one of those realities is that man is, is created to serve God, but man is in rebellion against God, but man must learn to serve God. And this is the ultimate problem because Romans uh, 1, 19 and 20 says that man is suppressing the truth by means of unrighteousness. He is committed in his heart to oppose God. He is, and that's, what, what did I say it was? Autonomy and arrogance. And so he, is, he builds his systems. So we start with this concept of, of origins, and then depending on what ultimate reality is, you develop a religion. Darwinism is a religion. Human, uh, secular humanism is a religion. It was defined as such, incidentally, by the Supreme Court in a ruling in the early 70s. Um, once you determine what your ultimate reality is, then you're going to start to worship it. If ultimate reality is material, then you will worship it in the form of materialism. Uh, if there's no ultimate meaning in life, then you end up worshiping your emotions and your pleasure because that's the only time you have any kind of stimulation in life. That's where most Americans are today. Uh, you move from developing a view of ultimate reality to your view of man. Uh, if man is basically good, there's no such thing as sin, then, um, then the goal of society is to improve man. And society is perfectible. But if man is basically sinful and basically evil, then you can't improve man. You can't reform him. Something has to happen from outside, which is what Christianity says. That affects your view of nature, your view of creation, uh, your view of global warming. All of these things are related to your view of ultimate origins. It'll affect your views of science and math, numbers, number theory, society. Marriage, family, politics are all defined. If you have a God who creates society, a God who ultimately embodies society, social relationships in his Trinitarian nature, then your views on society are going to be very different from your views if you uh, believe that everything's just accidental. Your views on suffering. If you're a Darwinist, suffering is good because uh, the survival of the fittest is your code word. And to have survival, you have to have conflict, you have to have suffering, you have to have trauma. So uh, <clears throat> suffering, tragedy, uh, conflict, catastrophe is really good because that allows somebody to survive. Whereas if you are a uh, Christian, suffering isn't accidental. God is in control. There is a purpose when you go through suffering, and God gives you solutions. It's a total contrast. Your view of law is different. Law comes from, if law, if you're, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, then law ultimately has its origin in the absolute standards of God's character. But if you are a Darwinist or you have various other empirical or uh, rational foundations, then law comes from, from society and from man. And so this provides another contrast in how you view uh, law. It also affects uh, how you view the arts, uh, music, theater, all of these things, literature, all are affected by uh, cosmic thought along with economics and business. It affects everything. It goes into this um, cosmic mi mix master. And as believers, we have to learn to think about these things. And this is why in James 4.4, James says that, that call, uh, James calls those he's writing to adulteresses, that is, they're unfaithful to God because they are, on the one hand, claiming to trust God and claiming to believe in the Bible, but they're living inconsistently with that. And so he labels that as friendship with the world. And uh, the goal of the Christian life is to not be in line with the world. First John 5, 19, we know that we are of God, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. He is the one who is blinding the world to the truth of the gospel. But what we have is something called absolute truth. John 16, 7, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, not a truth, but the truth. It's going to contrast with every other religious claim, every other philosophical claim. 
I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. He's talking about his ascension into heaven. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. The helper is a term for the Holy Spirit. But if I go, I will send him to you, and he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. This is what the Holy Spirit is doing when we witness to people. He is making them aware of the fact that they are sinners. That is, because they don't believe in Christ. John 16, 9. Romans 1 says everybody knows God exists, but they're suppressing that truth. So if you don't trust in Christ as your Savior... You're suppressing that truth. And so that is the sin that's the focus here, is not all the sins you committed in life, but the fact that up to this point you haven't trusted Christ as your Savior. And concerning righteousness, uh, he says, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And the righteousness here is the realization that man does not have his own righteousness. No matter how good you are, no matter how many religious activities you engage in, no matter how moral you are, you're never good enough to meet God's standard. The only way you can have perfect righteousness is to trust in Christ. And the scripture says if you believe in Jesus, then at that instant God imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and it's on the basis of his righteousness that God saves you, not on the basis of your righteousness. It's a legal uh, transaction. And John sixteen eleven concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world has been judged. In other words, Satan is judged at the cross, just as sin is judged at the cross. And because of that, we can know that the problem is solved uh, by Christ's death on the cross, and therefore the only solution is to trust in him uh, for salvation. This is the essence of worldliness. It is thinking about all of creation apart from God. And the solution to that as a believer is the Word of God because it's only when we uh, take in the Word of God, study the Word of God, that we can learn to think about God as he has revealed himself, learn to think about salvation as God has revealed it, and learn to think about creation as God has revealed it. So we fight this continuously. Scripture says that we have three enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And the world is that those systems of thought that we latch on to to justify our own rebellion, our own suppression of truth in unrighteousness, our own desires to make life work apart from God. But the, <clears throat> the solution is to come to this, the Word of God and let our thinking be conformed to the Word. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study your Word this morning. We pray that you'd make these things clear to each of us, that if there's anyone here that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. Your sins are all paid for. Uh, you can do nothing to pay for your sins, but he did it for you so that you could have eternal life by simply trusting in him. Right now, right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny by how you respond to the gospel message. If you believe in him, at that instant, God knows what you're trusting in, and you have eternal life, and that can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who's never trusted in Christ, that they would take this opportunity to do so. And for those who have, we pray that we might be challenged with the fact that we need to constantly grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, conforming our thinking to your word and not to the world around us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.